The Old Testament reading is from the book of Joel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The New Testament reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jonathan. Perfect pronunciation on those nations. <laughs> Man, we got to get a professional reading right there. Well, we continue starting off the new year with a new sermon series on the book of Acts. And really what we are getting after here in this series is how is the kingdom of God going to reach the ends of the earth? Now, many of us might have different answers to that particular question. Some might say it's going to reach the ends of the earth through political strength, military strength, brute strength. And yet, as we discussed last week, we see that Jesus' paradigm for the kingdom of God isn't arrogant triumphalism nor Christian you know, nationalism conquering all the other nations. Rather, the book of Acts surprises us by pointing us towards being witnesses. Witnesses the ends of the earth, martyrs who rely on the Holy Spirit's power to bring the gospel to others, our neighbors, our region, and to our world. And so we continue on seeing in this text Jesus' promise fulfilled, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, a text so famous for its miracle that we need to stop and pause and examine, you know, what does this miracle really mean for us today? Sometimes uh, when we look at the miraculous nature of stories in Scripture, we often ask the question, well, how did that happen? When the reality, the bigger question that Luke is trying to tell uh, this person that he's writing to, Theophilus, is 
Not how did that happen, but what is God trying to show us through the miracle? And so with that, uh, before we begin, let's go into prayer and we'll dive right into this text. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would know the Holy Spirit more through this passage of Scripture today. We pray that you would speak now your words of wisdom, your word that would reach to all of us, no matter our backgrounds or the barriers that we place. Give us the words right now that we need to hear and use the preacher to tell of the mighty works of God. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, yesterday was a national holiday that many of you may not be aware of. It was the national holiday that was made official in 2005. It was, uh, yesterday was actually Korean American Day in this country. January 13, uh, 1903, marked the first arrival of the very first Korean immigrants to the United States. Families that were escaping famines and the turbulent political climate of Korea. And so for many Korean Americans, uh, yesterday was a reminder of the sober history of Korean American in this country, often scarred uh, with the horrors of uh, policies like the Oriental Exclusion Act, uh, the use of Koreans as cheap labor on plantations, uh, the L.A. riots on Koreatown and, and other offenses. But the, the, good, the good of remembering days like yesterday is that there is this sense of unity and joy that comes from knowing the journey of the last 120 years for Koreans to find a place in this nation uh, to be loved and cared for uh, by daring to introduce to the world who we truly and authentically are as simultaneously Koreans by culture and Americans by birth. And so it's a reminder that God's passion and desire is not for you know, this sort of flattening of ethnic culture, but the propagation of culture for those who are made in his image. In our denomination, the PCA, our, our denomination marked by an ugly history of racism and exclusion prior to its founding, in uh, 2017, we actually had our first minority moderator of our General Assembly, a, a Korean-American by the name of Alexander Jun, who uh, continues to be an ambassador for helping our fellow brothers and sisters see the difficulties and challenges of cross-cultural proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a poem that Alex composed, he recounts the challenge of difficulty of reaching the ends of the earth, even as simple as describing food in this sort of lighthearted poem he wrote about what it means to translate Korean food to those who don't understand it. Uh, and the pain that is, is caused by in the way that he can't fully express the joy of the food that he eats because translating it to English makes the food sound unappealing. He wants to call it kimchi, but instead he has to call it fermented cabbage. Right? He wants to call it gennip, but he's forced to say perilla leaves, which he doesn't even know what a perilla is. It's just gennip to him. Right? And so he's recounting the challenges of describing a word that he loves, but not being able to describe that word fully. Kimpop becomes seaweed rice rolls, for example. And he recognizes the soul-crushing reality that even in simply explaining his food, the beauty of his food is lost. And it sets the divide of his culture as strange, exotic, the other. Sadly, language, rather than being the beautiful reality of who we are and who God has made us to be, too often language creates barriers to cause great divides. 
it makes us wonder how can the Lord work in our current days and times that we live in. We wonder where does Christianity fit into these barriers and what does it mean to see the kingdom of God in this climate. And that's why today's text gives us a powerful message about how the Holy Spirit is going to work in disciples to go to the ends of the earth. You see, it's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that empowers faithful cross-cultural ministry to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave his disciples in verse 8 of chapter 1. But it also gives assurances to Christ's disciples that it's the Holy Spirit that gives the power to accomplish this seemingly impossible work. So today we are going to look at three things that the Holy Spirit uh, is and is worth talking about in light of the disciples' charge. And we're going to answer specifically three questions. Uh, One, uh, what does the Holy Spirit represent? Two, what does the Holy Spirit reunite? And three, what does the Holy Spirit reverse? So what does the Holy Spirit represent, reunite, and reverse? So let's examine first, uh, what does the Holy Spirit represent? So last week, uh, Jesus promised that his disciples would receive the Holy Spirit and they would go to the ends of the earth, but first they were told, interestingly enough, to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. The disciples, you see, thought that the kingdom of God was merely a Jewish national reality. They asked Jesus, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? As though they thought that Jesus would have seen the kingdom of God as purely localized in one country. But in reality, Jesus was preparing them for global mission that needed the Holy Spirit's power to work through to carry it forward. And that's why he tells them to wait, because they needed to reach their own tribe, their own culture, first. So the arrival of the Holy Spirit marks its interest here in chapter 2. And in verse 2, we notice how it comes. How does it represent it? It shows like a mighty rushing wind. And in verse 3, a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of the disciples. Now, oftentimes when we see this kind of imagery in Scripture that's sort of miraculous and majestic and grand in nature, our tendency is to focus on the miracle itself and the wonder of it. Now, while that can be helpful, you have to remember that Jesus' disciples are coming from a faith that this imagery of a mighty rushing wind and a fire descending had great historical meaning. The mighty wind and fire coming down would have represented of their own historical past. You see, the spirit coming in a force like a mighty wind sounds a lot like the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37 of his prophecy who gives this well-known story of these dead bones being brought back to life with the breath of God and this powerful wind. The significance of this wind imagery means that the people of God would be given a new life, be filled with the same spirit and power that would give life to the ministry of the disciples and, through the disciples' proclamation, give life to others. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit represented this imagery of fire resting upon them and reminded them of the great stories of their past stories that represented the divine presence of God. Think the burning bush to Moses. Think the fire that guided the Israelites through the wilderness in the Exodus. This fiery imagery denotes that God is with them, that God is near to them, that God 
is enabling them to do what they could not accomplish on their own. And the Holy Spirit in this story grants them the ability to speak in tongues. Now, uh, this word for tongues is different than the word for tongues used in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's, it, it's talking about, specifically in this context, talking about the ability to speak in other languages. So this is very different than what Paul is talking about to the Corinthian church. So in other words, the filling of this Holy Spirit then, as we see represented in these two images of wind and fire, represents two realities. The mighty rushing wind that would bring the dead to life and the fire that would guide them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. The disciples were given tangible means to see the Holy Spirit represented to real living examples of God's Word, working through them, empowering them to shatter cultural barriers that would hinder the gospel moving forward to the nations. In other words, the Holy Spirit being represented here is not a God of confusion, but one that points back to the Word of God itself in ways that inspires the people of God to see how He is working today. Um, I find this so compelling because too often the Holy Spirit in our current day Christianity is seen as something akin to mere intuition, good instincts at best, and random speculation at worst. There may be some of us here who remember a time where guys would ask out girls using the classic line, hey girl, the Holy Spirit was telling me that we should be together. Fact alone that some of you remember things like that prove my point about how low a view that the church has about the third person of God. The Spirit is not a guess that you get right 50% of the time. The Spirit is not a gut feeling that just so happens to be exactly what you desire in that moment. The Spirit is not a premonition. The Spirit is a person that dwells in you. This person empowers you to live at the power of God working in your life to do the things that point to His Word, that point to His promises, according to the Word of God. And the Spirit would never ask you to do something that contradicted His commands. The Spirit points us back to the reality of who God is and His power and what He has done. The power to become more like Christ in His love and compassion, in His thoughts and words and charity. The power to proclaim and tell others about Him in ways that goes beyond your physical limitations and the fears that you hold. The power to help people who were once dead to be brought back to life. The power to lead others to the heavenly kingdom. This Holy Spirit that disciples would have is realized is now upon them, and the imagery that accompanies it makes it undeniable in their minds about what their mission should be. So it's important to ask ourselves the question, as Jesus' disciples saw, how have you seen the Holy Spirit work in power in your own life? This could be as something as small as seeing yourself truly in God's eyes for the first time with the same dignity that He sees you. This could be something so small as being convicted of sin. Or something as large as God doing something so wonderful that it could not have happened otherwise. But Scripture's clear here. The Holy Spirit descended upon all the disciples. 
not just a select few. All of Jesus' disciples will see it. The prophecy of Joel 2 that we read in our Old Testament uh, passage here today was not for a select group of people to receive some special kind of baptism of the Holy Spirit, but rather all believers will be filled with this Holy Spirit power. How have you seen the Holy Spirit work in your life? Does it cause you to marvel and wonder about God in ways that you cannot even begin to understand? See, because when you do see the Holy Spirit work in your life, you will begin to see the answer to our next question, and that is, what does the Holy Spirit reunite? Reunite. We see Luke goes out of his way to show that the Holy Spirit is reuniting the broken people of God back to himself. Now let's rewind here a little bit and talk about, in verse 1, this Jewish holiday called Pentecost that the Jews were celebrating. You see, Pentecost was the 50th day after the Sabbath, after the Passover celebration. All right, a little bit confusing, but 50 days after the Sabbath, after the Passover. A day which signified one of the great three festivals of the Jewish religion, where all Jews would come to Jerusalem, right, coming from all over the world, and celebrate with feasting. And in the rabbinic tradition, would actually hear God's law read to them at Pentecost. In other words, it was this sort of massive family reunion that also happened to be a national holiday. So people made the pilgrimage to come for those who were able. It was a, a cultural and religious celebration that brought the world to Jerusalem. Now, just as a quick aside, what's interesting here is the reality that too often we miss this in our very own local context. You see, we think that being a Christian means going out to the world and too often we miss that the world finds its way to come to us. They are right there to be reached, and we don't even realize it. A recent demographic study by the World Population Review shows that Columbia, Maryland, uh, has 24% of its people that speak non-English languages. And America itself is going through an era of one of its most diverse ages that it has ever lived in, and we need to realize and consider you know, just as God sets up the circumstances for what happens here at Pentecost, what does it mean for us as his disciples when the world comes to our doorstep? These are people who are coming uh, by, by the studies that, uh, that are out there, more open to God and more open to the gospel than those actually living in America. And so this might be a question for us to consider that is this a moment where the Holy Spirit can work far greater than we can think, or possibly imagine. But still, uh, in, our, in, in the text today, the problem existed for these Jews that were coming from all these other nations. A problem that is presented in the recanting of, uh, not the recanting, uh, the recalling of all the nations that came to Jerusalem. You see, the Pathians, the Medes, the Elamites, and the Mesopotamians spoke Aramaic. Exiles who were deported by their oppressors, the Assyrians, and decided to remain in Assyria. So these Jews now had very confusing cultural roots. They were both Persian and Jewish, not really one or the other. Anyone who is a minority American in this country perhaps can relate. I, I, I'm too American for Koreans that I talk to, and I'm way too Korean for the Americans. All right? And that's what these groups uh, were facing in returning back to the motherland, to Jerusalem. How will they be seen 
by their so-called own people. Meanwhile, those from Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, and Pamphylia are all groups from modern-day Turkey, otherwise known as Asia Minor. These were military settlers from Babylon, the enemy, who made the trek back home. Likewise, they, in returning to Jerusalem, would have been seen as impure. They're from Babylon. They're not truly a true Jew. Then there were those from Egypt and the district of Libya and around Cyrene, Jews from North Africa, who became a dominant ethnic group in Alexandria, Egypt. At one point, nearly one million Jews. A subculture that had been created all their own. A unique Jewish identity in North Africa. And they were returning home. Jews from Rome who brought along Gentile converts called proselytes who converted to Judaism but were Gentiles, despite the fact that they walked faithfully and converted to Judaism. These were Jews that didn't look like Jews at all, and they were all a part of the evil Roman Empire and its religiously unfavorable systems to those who held to a monotheistic worldview. Cretans were famously known as liars, from a large island close to Turkey. Arabians were descendants of Esau, the family that was hated by God and certainly should have been rejected. So enlisting all these nations, do you suddenly start to see the picture of what Luke is describing here? Right? The situation is the Jewish people are divided, completely torn apart by cultural circumstances, by generations of history of separation and division. Different sects and practices had formed. The pain of the divide of the history of the northern and southern kingdom. The exiles and families who chose to stay or leave. The constant division and arguing over truth and misinformation of the rabbinic tradition and its meaning. The once heralded tribes of Israel, the ones who once took the promised land, now a shell of itself in a family divided. So the challenge then becomes, how will the Holy Spirit work in such a way to reunite all of these divided groups of Jews together to speak the same gospel? How can they bring the family of God back together? And what the Holy Spirit does is truly amazing. The Holy Spirit causes for people to hear the gospel, described in this text as the mighty works of God in a way that resonated not just to the native language of the Israelites, but to all of these divided groups that brought them to a state of amazement and astonishment. They could call kimchi, kimchi, and they understand it. The disciples speak, and there's no need for translation. Rather, authenticity in culture that is felt to those Jews traveling across the world. They understand it in their own context. They understand it in their own backgrounds. And the words of Christ compelled them to respond. Perhaps this lesson can be, perhaps a lesson can be formed here about something beautiful and incredible, which is, uh, should speak to what we need to grow and develop in, in our ability as evangelists. Those who are working under the true power of the Holy Spirit evangelizing and proclaiming Christ to others, need to learn how to speak the language of those whom we're bringing the gospel to. Lazy evangelism is one that fails to see the need to contextualize. Oh, they need to come to me. They need to speak my language before I can proclaim the gospel to them. Rather, 
for us, maybe we need to drop our Christianese and proclaim Christ in a way that's intelligible in their language for those who are listening. So in other words, the Christian cannot say, oh, Christianity speaks for itself. The Holy Spirit's going to work anyway. Why do I need to pursue them? But the amazement of the crowd and the people to the miracle of translation should speak to us about the needs how to translate our current Christianity into our current context in a way that they recognize what we're saying and they understand. How we reunite the family of God is by learning to reach across the divide. So in a post-Christian world and society that we live in, the old evangelism strategy of going up to someone and saying, where would you go if you were to die today? Would you go to heaven? That's an unintelligible statement to a post-pagan world who doesn't even believe in a heaven. We need to think about how do we translate Christianity to the language that they are speaking. The great apologist and evangelist Cornelius Van Til recognized that the mere argumentation of the facts of Christianity, as though they were some sort of supposed neutral ground to which Christians could argue, was in reality a fallacy. Van Til was more interested in understanding the foundations of the person that he was engaging with in conversation, understanding their worldview, understanding their desires, understanding their longings, and found ways to translate what they were truly desiring out of life, what they were really longing for, and connecting it to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, he wanted to study them and speak their language and tell them, actually, you know what? That thing that you're desiring is actually found in Jesus. You want a real understanding of purpose in your life and a meaning towards living? It's only through Christ has given you value far beyond the one of the life that you'll live. You want real joy and happiness? It's only when you stop chasing the temporary joys and come to the real joy of loving God and loving neighbor sacrificially. You want to know true freedom and independence. Then stop being a slave to your sin and instead see freedom of living the way that God has created you to live in the bondage that he has freed you from when Christ went on the cross. You want an end to your suffering? Then look to the sufferings of Christ who bore all of them and your sins and the wrath of God and carry them for you to give you a perspective on life that can bring joy through any given situation and circumstance. You see, what Van Til was getting at, when we are able to translate what people are truly desiring, the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us to contextualize well, we'll be able to tell them truly about a Jesus that speaks their language. The disciples and their proclamations in tongues, you see, is not just about the manner in how the miracle comes about. But to quote the scholar F.F. F. Bruce, it's the matter of what the miracle is pointing to. The family of God being reunited again. The family of God being able to understand each other after generations of division and misunderstanding. A true Holy Spirit work, therefore, is not about opposition, but reconciliation. It's about bringing people together who otherwise would have nothing to do with one another and go into the hard work of peacemaking and unity. Why? Because as Ephesians reminds us, what is the church? There's one body. One spirit and his people are to be one as well in the great picture of the unity of the body through the diversity of the gifts. It is this great reversal from how the world operates and the curse of the fall. 
And that's what leads us to our last question here. What does then the Holy Spirit reverse? What does it reverse? The whole narrative of the falling of the Holy Spirit on the disciple begs the question for us today. Why is the Holy Spirit acting this way first? It would seem to us like a very arbitrary miracle. You know, some sort of Rosetta Stone, Duolingo translation effort. What's the big deal about this? Why start off the work of the Holy Spirit in this way? You see, people who study the Bible notice something peculiar here about this story and its presentation. Here you have the people of God, all coming together for a cause, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them in different languages. Now in Judaism, there's this famous story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel. And if you've grown up in church, you'll know this story, but I'll summarize it in brief. Uh, In Genesis, there's a story, there's a people of God who all came together in speaking just one language and the same words, and they came together not for worship, but rather to challenge God, to make a name for themselves greater than God himself. And so they try to build this tower, but God confuses them and spreads them across the earth through different languages. And the assumption from this Genesis narrative is that language and culture, these are all curses. Language and uh, culture are all curses from the fall. That's the assumption. Different races is the problem. Oneness is the solution. And we need to be one language and everything will be right again. But the Holy Spirit comes here in Acts chapter 2. And what is it that we see? Different languages all hearing the same message, but not in one language, in all the languages, in their own context. And so rather than an eradication of culture and language, there is a celebration of the mighty works of God in all of these nations, in all of these tribes, in all of these tongues. In other words, the first miracle the Holy Spirit in Acts is pointing to reality that the cultural divide that the disciples thought was a curse of the fall is actually a catalyst for God's work to the ends of the earth in building his kingdom. So language, culture, they're not barriers that we think of, barriers of sin, but rather bridges for the pathway for the Holy Spirit to work most powerfully for the sake of the expanding of his kingdom. You see, it's not just about this apostolic authority that was given to the disciples of the Holy Spirit to speak in these different languages for the miracle to occur, Although that is important, and we do need to create a distinction between apostolic gifts and gifts that believers have today. But it's also important to demonstrate the gospel reversal in Acts. The veil has been torn. The barrier between God and man has been removed. And the Spirit will now move forth to reconcile enemies of God, and they will be His people. Gentiles will become a part of this family. Babylonians, Persians, The one who hunts Christians down will become its most fervent apostle. The Roman Empire will hear that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. So the Holy Spirit will bring about this gospel reversal in ways that brings the kingdom so unbelievably that you will have to respond to this reversal. You'll either have to be amazed and perplexed, like some of these hearers were, or you'll have to reject it entirely. Verse 13 reminds us that the gospel doesn't leave room for us to see it any other way. 
Famously, as I was reminding community group this week, C.S. Lewis says that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord, and so are the works of the Spirit. Either Christians are all drunkards, we're all filled with sweet wine, you've come to Sunday worship today, today to just simply go crazy, although crazy is not the, the word I would use to describe Presbyterians, um, but, like, but we are compelled right, by His Spirit to do what? To proclaim Him faithfully. So we're either drunkards or we actually believe in this thing. And we believe in His mission. And we believe in what the Gospel is calling us to. The reversal is unexpected, but by the Spirit's power, it's real. The Tower of Babel and its supposed curses becomes instead reversed. Where now every nation, tribe, and tongue is going with one mission to glorify God together. One of my heroes is a man by the name of Harvey Kahn, a man whose whole life was about an unexpected gospel reversal. A rebellious youth group student, uh, we don't have any of those, do we? Um, Who once was called, and I kid you not, he was called this, a thorn in the flesh by his own pastor and called by his own Sunday school teacher that he would never make it to heaven. Uh, Harvey came to faith in college, and went to graduate from Westminster Theological Seminary, where of all places, uh, Harvey felt called to be a missionary in South Korea, where he would reach out to prostitutes, ones who were being exploited on the military base where Harvey served, and gave reversal of the gospel in ways that Harvey saw dignity where others simply just saw uh, untouchable sexual sin. See that these were not only sinners, but in the system of oppression by the ones uh, who were controlling these prostitutes, they had actually been sinned against. Harvey faced physical beatings for disrupting this system. Uh, and he, him and his wife decided to move back to America where another great reversal had happened. Harvey returned to his alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, a seminary not known for its urban outreach, And Harvey shifted his focus to the inner city ministry in Philadelphia and turned Westminster Theological Seminary into a place that created the center for urban theological studies. Harvey saw the Spirit's work meant that, as he would often say, that we no longer live in a global village but a global city. And he knew that he needed to reach out to them where it was so often neglected by seminaries and other Christian institutions. He translated to the level of the streets rather than expecting the streets to speak in the language of Dutch reformers. They planted churches, did mercy ministry, and Harvey became one of the pivotal founders of urban missiology. You see, Harvey recognized that the best of the reformed tradition, the best of why we uh, follow this tradition, is one that saw missions as an incarnational cross-cultural endeavor, rather than a mere intellectual posturing meeting the needs of people and proclaiming Christ and not setting up false dichotomies between them. And he wrote one of the great pillars of evangelism books out there called Evangelism, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace. The Holy Spirit, in Harvey's worldview, never totalizes justice or totalizes proclamation. True missions work requires both. The Holy Spirit's inauguration that reversed Babel, in other words, needed to reverse the situation that Harvey was living in. And it reverses our expectations today. And in doing so, the church causes the world to be amazed and perplexed. 
So where does this final reversal lead? You know, what's so interesting is that the Tower of Babel story is that anyone who expected a reversal of that story would expect that God would make everyone sing, uh, speak one language. That sin being no more means that there's only one culture. But what do we see in the perfected kingdom of God in Revelation? Every nation, tribe, and tongue praising the Lord forever and ever. In other words, language is not a curse of the fall. It actually is the full eschatological reality of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. They're not, in other words, hindrances to true community and fellowship, but highlights of the kingdom. The miracle of Acts in sending his spirit is the gospel reversal of what was thought to be a curse, and it actually is a blessing. And this is what God constantly reminds us, doesn't he, in our own lives. That we who once were far off have been brought near by Christ, reunited together as his people by the mighty power of the Spirit, like a rushing wind, like a fire descending upon his people, guiding us, the church, to the promised land. And so as we close here today, uh, let's look at this story in Acts chapter 2 a little bit differently. It's not just some sort of special superpower that the apostles were given. They were, they were bitten by a radioactive Holy Spirit and became Spider-Man, right? It's, it's not this performance of a magic trick. But rather, what is happening here in chapter 2 is to demonstrate what the Holy Spirit does in the life of every believer. All that there is no need today for tongue-speaking in the same way that the apostles did. There's still a work in every believer of a mighty rushing wind in our own lives to reunite the family of God, to reverse the problem of sin through the proclamation of Christ, crucified and resurrected, translated to those whom we're talking to. In other words, when we are using the Spirit's words, we will see a God that is moving to build His kingdom in Colombia, and to the rest of the world. So, I leave you here with this last question. What will the great reversal of the gospel do in your life? How will the Holy Spirit act in you today? Let's pray together.